voice of Minnesota. It's the Friday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. So before we dive into the show today, want to make one more plug for our AM950 calendar, a really cool calendar that you can order for 2021. Features some beautiful photos taken by Matt McNeil throughout the year during his nature walks and has some important dates listed in both AM 950 history and progressive political history. The way you can get that calendar is by making a one-time $50 donation to AM 950 on our membership page or by making a recurring monthly $25 donation. Find more details over at am950radio.com and hopefully you can get one of those really cool AM 950 calendars for 2000 All right, let's get into my first interview for today as we are going to be talking about big tech and social media. Here it is. Well, there's been a number of social media news stories that have been through the news cycle over the past few weeks or so, so figure we need to discuss these. So bringing back to the show someone we had on a few months ago, that's Adam Raziri. He is the Chief Marketing Officer at Agency Partner Interactive, as we're going to be talking through three topics. One is going to be this lawsuit that was filed by the Justice Department against Facebook uh, regarding some antitrust concerns. Actually, that was the FTC who filed that lawsuit, just quick correct. We'll also be talking about Section 230, what that is and why Donald Trump wants to see that repealed, and some other social media platforms we're seeing come up as alternatives to Facebook, YouTube, and Google that are leaning a little bit more towards the conservative side of the political spectrum. So, Adam, good to have you back on the show to unpack all of these topics. Brett, pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. So I want to start off talking about these new platforms that we've seen that have popped up as alternatives to some of the major platforms you're used to, like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Google. Uh, These would include MeWe, which is kind of the uh, conservative version of Facebook. Also Parler, which is a big one people have, I think, heard of a lot of over the past few weeks with the election. That's an alternative to Twitter. And there's some others as well. So i got to ask you this, Adam, because at least... Immediately after the election ended, Parler got a lot of traffic to their site and had a lot of downloads of their app. But now that the election is further behind us, how are these alternative platforms doing now? Yeah, you know, I think these alternative platforms, some are doing better than others. And, you know, to your point there, you know, for every yin, there's a yang. For Facebook, there's a MeWe. For Twitter, there's a Parler. For YouTube, there's a Rumble. And then even still, there's, for Google, there's a DuckDuckGo, which has been around for a while. But these, these platforms saw a huge bump just really in that week after the election. Uh, speaking to Parler specifically, you know, this app went from little, almost 3 million users in July. And by the end of November, these guys were racking up and it was about 10 million users overall. So they've experienced tremendous growth. But, you know, when you grow that quickly, a lot of issues are, are, are kind of presented to you and, and a lot of uh, startup businesses call those growing pains. So, you know, these guys are dealing with issues of scalability. They're dealing with issues of customer service. They're dealing with uh, marketing concerns specific to how do we re-engage these users that are now on our platforms? Um, because it's not just enough to get somebody to download the app or to download um, a platform uh, of a social nature, just like these, but you also have to engage those users and give them an incentive to come back and, and actually be active in the community. So, you know, if I'm if I'm talking about Parler specifically, 
this is an app that, you know, it's been around since 2018. It's kind of been trucking, trucking along and growing slowly. But yeah, it was a selection that really sparked just a ton of growth for them. And me, we alike, which is kind of like the, the, uh, the Facebook rival there or the Facebook, uh, we'll just say competitor. Right. So these platforms have definitely grown. Um, and I think what they're trying to probably do for the most part is uh, attract funding, right. So that they can, uh, finance their, their business needs. Uh, parlor. I know it's, it's, it seems to be attracting, um, investment from the Mercer family. And this is a family that's been known to, uh, to donate to conservative, uh, causes and business organizations. Uh, MeWe as, as a platform, uh, again, the, the, the competitor to Facebook. Uh, this is kind of like a, a Facebook that really has no ads and has no targeting. There's, they pitch no manipulation of the news feed. It's a little bit clunky as a platform. Just when you get on there, it's, it's kind of clunky, but Facebook's kind of clunky too. Uh, these guys have about 18 million in funding. I, I think the thing that will separate them moving forward is going to be who they hire to their, to their board uh, of advisors and, and ultimately, what sort of brain power is brought into these businesses to um, to do something that's very important, which is to diversify the conversations and to diversify the schools of thought uh, within these organizations, so that you know uh, platforms like Parler aren't just echo chambers, right? You, you need a, a healthy conversation, not a one-sided conversation. And so, there have been active efforts from a lot of these platforms to actually uh, move toward that direction, but it definitely does not happen overnight. So expanding on that, how are some of these platforms marketing themselves? Because you, I think, hit the nail on the head right there. Just marketing yourself as being a free speech alternative, supposedly free speech alternative to the more mainstream YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and so on and so on, is only going to take you so far when you're already facing an uphill climb against these gigantic tech companies that largely have a monopoly on the market. Uh, talk about the marketing aspect a little bit, because that's an uphill climb, and I think you got to do something more than just saying you're the conservative alternative to Facebook right. and so on. Right. I, I think in cases where if, if you're the brand and you're saying we are the conservative alternative to XYZ, right? We are the conservative alternative to Twitter. We are the conservative alternative to, to Facebook, uh, YouTube, Google. If you as the brand say that, you're, you're, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. And it's also counterproductive to what their business goal should be, which is to attract more of a diverse usership. So what they have to do is they have to really make a, a strong marketing effort to appeal towards both left-leaning thinkers and right-leaning thinkers. They seem to be doing okay with the right, but they need to basically do what they can to attract more left-leaning thinkers. And with Parler specifically, what they've done is they've actually offered basically – I think they're actually calling them bounties. They are willing to pay up to 20 grand to uh, left-leaning political influencers that will bring their following to the parlor platform to, to just engage in, in healthy conversations with, uh, with the people that are already uh, on parlor. So, you know, marketing, whether it's through influencer marketing or through um, brand messaging or to, or, or, or also through creating partnerships with other platforms. Um, these are different ways to do that. Rumble is Rumble is basically the um, the competitor to YouTube right now. Uh, it's got about 80 million users, and there was a huge bump in users right after the election. They they actually had about 40 million users in the middle of the summertime, bumped up to 60 million users in October, and found themselves with about 80 million users um, by the end of November. 
this competes with YouTube. YouTube has 2 billion users on the platform right now. But what Rumble's been doing is they've been pitching themselves as the basically a town square, if you will, sort of just this open forum where they're not going to, to moderate or, or censor what another platform might call as misinformation. They're just going to let you speak. And if you're going to be up there and you're going to be saying something that's stupid and making yourself look stupid, that's on you. It's not on them. So they're, they're really allowing their users to uh, to share content, whatever that content may be. Um, but they're actually creating partnerships with these other platforms. Uh, Rumble gets a lot of referral clicks from Parler specifically. So they're, they're finding ways to create like these brand partnerships that could potentially allow them to share users from one platform to the next. And one of the big selling points that Rumble, Parler, and Me We Use is something you just talked about, how they have little to no moderation. But there also can be a downside to not having any moderation if you really think about it. And I'm looking at a piece that the Washington Post wrote a few days ago where they're talking about how I think Parler's basically been flooded with porn and other sorts of spam types of posts. And those types of things can also happen when you basically have no moderation, correct? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, there's there's obviously going to be people that are out there on the web. The web's a big place, and there are going to be people that share content that's valuable and content that's just absolute junk. Um, you know, when it comes to kind of exposing yourself to, to certain types of content, uh, MeWe, you know, again, that, that Facebook rival, MeWe does not prevent users with content. MeWe allows users to pursue types of content through uh, search terms through uh, through groups and, and MeWe actually it's been around since 2012 and it was founded by their starting team is actually fairly impressive. Um, one of their um, investors is Linda Weinman, who was uh, the founder of Linda.com. Uh, they have another investor, Rachel Roy. She's a fashion designer who has that clientele, including Michelle Obama, uh, Kim Kardashian, who I call Kim Ye, uh, Tyra Banks, and Penelope Cruz. You know, they, actually, this is kind of a, one that, that surprised me, but they have Jack Canfield. Uh, he's a guy over here in North Texas where I am, um, and he's the author of uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul. So MeWe has an interesting um, business team that it's, it's been creating pages that allow for um, a diversity of thought. So whether I have an interest in, you know, the Green Party or in dogs or in, um, you know, the Stop the Steal campaign, you know, wherever I might fall, uh, MeWe has pages that users can basically seek out, um, but the content does not go to the users. So with Parler, it's a little bit different. Um, you're going to see content that um, comes from those within your network. Um, you know, if you are if you are not someone who is of age by any means, I believe there are some filters that you can select that will block certain types of content from, from you. But, um, you know, I think you make a great point, though. Where is that line? Um, where is that divide? Where does where does censorship become censorship? And and where does um, you know where, where does that level of responsibility fall when it comes to ensuring that um, whether that user is not of age or you know that user is someone that you know it, it just absolutely cannot be exposed to certain types of thought. You know where, where does that responsibility fall? And, and really, I think that that question too has sparked these these bigger discussions of Section Two Thirty. Um, you know, should social platforms just be sort of like a really just as free as a public sidewalk? You know, should it be a true town square where, you know, the identities are verified, you know who the people are that are speaking, so that way they can be held accountable to whatever their, their message might be. Um, but whatever that message is, they're allowed to actually express it. Um, Parler does verify identities to make sure that 
Uh, the users on the platform are truly real people. Um, and there's actually been some, some controversy about that as well. Uh, they, they do, I believe, require a image submission of a driver's license to make sure that you are who you say you are. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're, if you're that user who is channeling junk through the platform, like, like pornography, for example, or, or you know, if you happen to be tied to a terrorist organization, um, there are policies that exist at probably specifically that allow them to, uh, we'll just use the word deplatform that type of user. You mentioned Section 230, and I want to get to that in just a couple of seconds. But first, I do got to ask, expanding on that privacy aspect, uh, how do their privacy policies compare to the more mainstream platforms of Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube? Are they any better, any worse, or is it tough to make that comparison? You know, Brett, it's a really interesting question. And, and I think um, the biggest the biggest differentiator that I've kind of picked up on is the privacy policies that you have at Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and Google, those privacy policies all very clearly allow these companies to share your information with marketers like me, right? I'm a digital marketer. Um, I can use the information that I get from Facebook to basically identify who I'm going to advertise to and who I'm not going to advertise to. So the information that they collect on you, it's your device data, you know, the information that your, that your mobile devices collect, where you're going, where you've been, um, how often you, you go there, uh, times of day, uh, stuff that's actually on your device from an app's perspective. Uh, occasionally, your, your browser history as well. It collects a lot of information, platforms, and this is basically used to the benefit of marketers, right? These, these more, um, we'll just say these more conservative platforms, MeWe, Parler, Rumble, and, and DuckDuckGo as a browser, they are different. You know, MeWe, actually, they make their money not off of advertising, but they have a freemium model. So uh, their users pay on a monthly basis. Kind of like, you know, you have Wikipedia, right? And it's like there's a free, I mean, Wikipedia is free, and they offer knowledge to the world, but they ask for a little bit of, of a donation every year uh, to keep going and to stay free. MeWe is very open about what they need, and they're going to charge each user uh, for premium levels of content for uh, premium exposure to other uh, brands and influencers that are in their space. I think Parler is still trying to figure out what their monetization model is really going to be. I don't think they're quite sure yet what, what that is. Um, and then Rumble, of course, they allow users to um, basically monetize their content. Um, so the, the content creators are, are monetizing their content based on views and consumption. Um, it's a little bit different than YouTube because they're not, making their money off of the actual um, viewers on the platform. The Rumble content is syndicated throughout other platforms. So um, I think the privacy policies really, it's, it's kind of the biggest differentiator is the business model. You know, am I using that advertising or am I using that data to, um, to help marketers do their thing? Or am I truly protecting the user who's on the platform and truly making an effort to not um, use their data for, for certain types of, um, of decision-making as it applies to either advertising or uh, exposure to certain conversations that are taking place. And that was part one of my interview with Adam Raziri, Chief Marketing Officer at Agency Partner Interactive, as we're talking about big tech and some of the litigation that big tech is facing. In fact, we'll get into that coming up in part two of the interview, as the FTC might be trying to break up Facebook. Stick around. We'll talk about that up next.
950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Friday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. Right now we're speaking with Adam Raziri, Chief Marketing Officer at Agency Partner Interactive. That website is agencypartner.com. Here in part two of the interview, we're going to expand more on Section 230 and why the Trump administration dislikes that section so much. And we'll also talk about the FTC possibly trying to break up Facebook. So here's part two of the conversation. Want to move on now, Adam, to talking about Section 230. This was something passed back in 1996 that basically protects big companies from being sued for content users post on their websites. But this has been something that's been controversial during the Trump administration, as the administration would like to see Section 230 repealed. So, Adam, can you kind of give me a layman's definition of what exactly Section 230 does? I as I brought up just a few seconds ago, it, it, at least the basics I understand is that it basically prevents these big temp companies from being sued. But go into more detail about what 230 exactly does. Great. Yeah. So Section 230 is kind of like this, I call it, it's like a cloak of immunity. So it allows the social platforms to have, you know, it'll have your drunk uncle on the platform and whatever your drunk uncle says, however hateful it might be or however stupid it might be, um, it protects the platforms from whatever content your drunk uncle might post, right? Whether it's Twitter or Facebook or, or whichever uh, social platform it may be. It basically gives them this, this kind of like this, this separation from liability. And so the, the controversy with Section 230 is when, when these platforms start to become not just platforms that allow for conversations to take place, but when they're actually becoming active participants in conversations, deciding what conversations to allow and which, which conversations to sort of uh, maybe put a little bit in, on, put, press the mute button just a little bit, kind of lower the volume on. That's where they start to kind of, I guess, teeter along this fine line where you have certain influencers, both on the left and the right saying, you know what, if you guys are making decisions that basically dictate what content is on your platform, then I mean, you're basically the drunk uncle, whether, you're, whether you're posting good stuff or bad stuff. And so, there's there, there's a lot of uh, of movement right now to try and say, listen, Section 230 was is kind of being abused right now. That the social platforms that retain a majority of the users in the world, you know, Facebook has two billion people on it, right? Um, so, uh, Twitter has 330 million on it. Th- these are huge platforms with 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 just a huge huge user base, and when when they have just a small group of people that work for these companies that are making these decisions about you know what to what to dial up and what to dial down from a conversation perspective. Uh, you you get all sorts of people that are you know kind of throwing a fit about about those particular kinds of decisions. Um, so Section 230, you know, it's it's an older um, part of the uh, Communications Decency Act, and really it's the reason why um, social platforms have been allowed to grow in such a way that has kind of been free of of, of any sort of legal liabilities that might come from whatever their users might actually post. And the this is a big provision that has really benefited big tech companies over the past several years and decades because, well, if you think about other media outlets, whether it's newspapers or radio stations like us or TV stations, uh, they play by a different set of rules and they don't have the same sorts of benefits that tech companies get from Section 230, correct? It, it, it's It's fairly different. You know, and, and I don't know specifically what rules that, that some of the news organizations play under, but, you know, I do know that if, if they are 
responsible for posting something or, or publishing something that is just factually wrong or you know potentially damaging to certain people, um, they will be held accountable for for whatever that content might be. These tech companies, though, they can decide what to dial up and what to dial down, irrespective of who the author is. Um, it, it's it's actually interesting to see that you know they won't, in some cases, censor. Well, really, Twitter, for example, won't censor won't censor the um, supreme leader of Iran, um, but they will censor uh, both left and right thinkers that are in the United States uh, specifically. So. Who's making these decisions about which conversations to promote? Um, who, what's, what's kind of taking place when, when this decision-making is done? Um, and what can we do to ensure that if, if these companies are going to enjoy Section 230 immunities, that they are truly allowing for the public to enjoy this truly public forum? Uh, right now, we're just not seeing that. So what sorts of changes to these types of laws are we seeing possibly go through Washington right now? I know Section 230 has been a big debate between the Trump administration and uh, members of Congress. Uh, what sorts of changes are being proposed right now, and do any have any bipartisan support of possibly even getting through? Yeah, well, there's definitely bipartisan support for Section 230 reform. As we know, there's definitely uh, bipartisan support for antitrust. Uh, I mean, of course... And, and I really kind of think that this, this conversation of <clears throat> of antitrust versus Section 230 reform, it, it's kind of like pick your threat. And depending on the day, our legislators will threaten one or the other against big tech. Am I going to threaten big tech with, with antitrust today, or am I going to threaten big tech with Section 230 today? Um, specific to your question about what to change in Section 230, the one thing that I've kind of seen um, has been a review of the Good Samaritan protections that basically um, give these platforms the specific immunities that they enjoy. The thing that isn't stated very clearly in Section 230 is the criteria for which content moderation decisions are made. So what are the things that are asked? What are the things that are considered? What are those trigger points that say, okay, now is the time to block this versus, you know what, we'll let this one pass. We're going to let this um, hit the community and see what the community does with it. Uh, there's no consistency on when these moderation decisions are made. So Section 230 would have to just be a lot more explicit and a lot more defined. Right now, it's very, very broad. So until it's more defined, until it's more specific about you know, what those trigger points are, uh, when those decisions are made as to keep it or, or scrap it, it's just, it's just not there right now. Speaking with Adam Raziri, he is the Chief Marketing Officer at Agency Partner Interactive. That website is agencypartner.com. So I want to talk about this lawsuit that was recently filed against Facebook as federal regulators, I believe it was last week, sued to force a breakup of Facebook as 48 states in the District of Columbia have accused the company in a separate lawsuit of abusing its marketing power in social networking to crush smaller competition, smaller competitors. FTC said Facebook has engaged in a systematic strategy to eliminate its competition, including purchasing smaller startups and coming up rivals like Instagram back in 2014 or 2012 and WhatsApp back in 2014. So, Adam, as we break down this lawsuit a little bit, at least on the surface, to me at least, it seems pretty obvious that Facebook is a monopoly. But at least from a legal perspective, what are the litigants in this case doing to argue that Facebook is a monopoly and should be broken up? So uh, really what they're kind of pointing to, I think, are the business practices 
you know, Facebook has been so aggressive and really when they, when they, when they sense something coming their way and that, that thing coming their way could be the next great idea. Um, it could be something that they see as a threat to their existing business model or just something that they want, right? When they decided they wanted Instagram, that was a grab on really the, the younger millennials and kind of a move towards Gen Z, especially with the adoption of Instagram reels. Um, Facebook will find ways to use their power to buy either competing businesses or complementary businesses for cheap. Uh, they'll do so in a way that gives them extremely favorable deal terms and um, really leaves these, these innovative business founders, um, these, these startup leaders, with not a whole lot to show for, for the value they brought to the world. Now, it, it's interesting to kind of read some of the emails that Zuckerberg has sent with his leadership team. And in a lot of ways, they kind of look at it as like a, like a real estate land grab. You know, like, hey, let's go acquire this one today and let's acquire that one tomorrow. And uh, you know what? If these guys don't want to play ball with us and they don't want to give – um, if they don't want to sign the NDA or move forward with this deal, we're just going to drive them out of business. But that's really what they've done with both uh, other, other social platforms, but also with uh, augmented reality concepts. And so when we look at Facebook for what it is today, it's a, it's a platform with 2 billion users. I mean, just think about that, 2 billion users. That is, that is just huge. Uh, the way the platform is used not just domestically, but internationally, the platform has been used in a way that literally influences the behavior and the decision-making of entire nations. They collect so much information, and when that information is used in specific ways, very dangerous things can happen. You know, in Myanmar, we saw a genocide um, basically spearheaded by the government, uh, utilizing Facebook as their communication platform to do so. So when, when these companies become so powerful, you know, you have to worry about who's going to ultimately find a way to either dictate power of what that company does or, or use this, this power in a way that's just a little bit evil. Um, and, and so far in the United States, we see Facebook kind of getting more and more powerful. And yeah, there are other you know, platforms out there, but it's really hard to compete against the big dog in the, in the neighborhood, right? I mean, they push people around um, with ease. So they've got WhatsApp, they've got Instagram, uh, they have Instagram Reels to compete with TikTok. And frankly, there is kind of another discussion of, you know, uh, good versus evil when you look at the Facebook versus TikTok uh, dynamic, uh, which is interesting because when you talk about destabilizing these big tech platforms, there is an international component to it. TikTok is obviously owned by China. Um, Facebook is an asset of the United States. While Facebook might be making it hard for innovative concepts to rise up in the, in the U.S., that next great idea, at the same time, they do help us compete against China, right? So there, there are so many different things to consider when, it's, when it comes to the question of, you know, do we break up Facebook or do we just kind of change how they operate as a business and, and try to do something that doesn't harm the U.S. consumer, but at the same time allows for that next great idea to rise up? And talking about the defenses that Facebook has been making in this lawsuit, at least, I'm sure part of what they're saying is, well, maybe exactly what you just said, talking about how, well, they're kind of a competitor to what the Chinese are doing right now, and therefore you need them to keep the United States competitive. But talk a little bit about what their defense is and their arguments, how they're not a monopoly. Sure. So a lot of the, a lot of the times what you'll see from Facebook and 
they really are very good at uh, packaging up a, a message and, and packaging up whatever their case might be just because they have great attorneys and a lot of financial resources. But for the most part, they're saying, you know what? Instagram today would not be what Instagram today is had we not come in 2012 and bought this business for a billion dollars. Um, you know, WhatsApp was purchased in 2014 for $19 billion. You know, it's a lot of money, but Facebook's trying to argue that these companies today would not be as powerful as they are had Facebook not bought them and then obviously uh, shared their resources with those businesses. So I, I think that's probably one of their arguments. But then again, also, you know, Facebook is just Facebook and Instagram combined. They are just a couple of social platforms out of many. Uh, but then again, you'll see, you know what, Facebook, you've got 2 billion users. Twitter, you've got 330 million users. Um, there are many others out there. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a, a, a conversation of coverage. You know, which generations does Facebook's usership span? And they, man, when my grandpa was around, he was in his uh, early 80s when he passed away. He was on Facebook. Um, I'm one of the older millennials. I'm on Facebook. But, you know, a lot of the younger millennials and Gen Z, they're on Instagram and Instagram Reels. And of course, TikTok also. But Facebook literally has coverage of every strong living generation that exists in the U.S. Uh, and you could argue the world, too. So that, that might be one angle for arguing towards a monopoly. Uh, but, you know, I, I still think that at the end of the day, the, the bigger arguments are going to be uh, supporting Section 230 reform mm -hmm. and then also uh, general reform of antitrust laws because those things are over 100 years old. And uh, apart from that, also uh, business practices, making sure that Facebook's uh, business practices are not uh, counter to the competitive spirit of our country. So let's say Facebook actually does get broken up from this lawsuit, just in a hypothetical scenario. What would happen then if the company were broken up into several different companies? Great question. So I think what we'll see is just kind of a, a disassembly of Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> I mean, and what I mean by that, <laughs> what I mean by that is. You know, you'll probably have some sort of advertising company or platform that um, breaks apart from Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, but it's sort of like this weird kind of like data sharing conglomerate that has ties in each of those of those business units, but operates very differently from a model perspective. Um, almost like they'll create some sort of like partnership with this advertising company that controls the ad platform. Uh, but then you'll see, you know, Instagram for what it is break apart from Facebook. Uh, Facebook will operate a lot more independently from a platform perspective. Um, it'll likely create a lot of issues for marketers who have come to find a lot of convenience out of what Facebook's created by having these near seamless integrations. Um, all that being said, though, yeah, I think the business as is can break apart pretty, pretty easily just because the brands are all so strong on their own. Um, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram. That's kind of how I see it, but I do see sort of that sort of this fourth entity breaking apart from it that runs the advertising specifically. Um, and, and that's kind of what Google has as well, right? Google has its own ad tech that exists apart from the Chrome browser, that exists apart from Android, um, that exists apart from the G Suite. Uh, but the hard thing is, though, you know, we can all agree as consumers, big tech offers so much convenience, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it offers amazing tools and it offers amazing access to others. Uh, the fact that I can communicate with my in-laws in Maine from Texas uh, through these platforms. It's just, it's, it's so convenient, right? So for consumers to kind of see these things happen 
it, it might leave a little bit of bruising. It might, it might make things a little bit less convenient than what we're used to. But the reality is, is this will open up the market in such a way that allows for that next awesome thing to actually have enough room to, to wiggle to the top and to let the world know that they exist. As is, it's really hard for a small, awesome concept to do that. So we, we kind of have to make some room for them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about, for instance, how could anyone possibly compete with YouTube if you just think of, think of how much data is hosted on their platform, the number of videos uploaded to what they have? I mean, it would just be mind-boggling to even think of a concept as to how you could start a company that could compete with YouTube, for instance, or even Facebook or Twitter for that for that matter. Yeah, it would be, I would almost say that would be impossible to legitimately compete with any of those major companies right now just because of the number oh of Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the algorithms alone, I mean, the data science that goes into these things, it's not enough just to make something that looks beautiful and, and has a really, like, nice kind of end result for the user, but the, the, the engineering that goes into these things and the constant support and the constant optimization, you know, for, for a little startup, I mean, you're never going to compete with that. You're, you're just not. And that's why we've seen, you know, that's why we've seen over the last five to ten years, we've seen the world of, quote, second-tier search engines just disappear. Google has really pushed out every other search option. And yeah, Bing and Yahoo are still holding on. You know, you got Microsoft search hanging on to like 10% of the, of the search market, but Google's got 90% of all online searches. And it's because they offer such a simple experience. And the fact that you can type in, you know, four words out of your 12 letter word and and Google already knows what you're going to actually search for before you even enter that word. It's incredible, right? Like how do you compete with that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Hey, that's Adam Raziri, Chief Marketing Officer at Agency Partner Interactive. Their website is agencypartner.com. Adam, I am unfortunately out of time, but this was definitely a great conversation that we will have to have another time uh, during the new year once we figure out a little bit more what's happening with Section 230 and also this FTC suit against Facebook. So certainly lots to follow along as we head into 2021. Uh, Adam, really appreciate you going along with me today on a great conversation. Brett, it's been a privilege. Thank you. And stick around. We'll come on back and have more on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're back on FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. We're joined now by Natalie Baptiste. She is a reporter in Washington, D.C. for Mother Jones, as there's a couple of pieces she recently wrote for Mother Jones that caught my attention that we're going to talk about on the show today. Those include Twitter trying to stop Donald Trump's election lies from spreading and then pretty much giving up on it. And also what's happening with these federal executions possibly spreading COVID-19. So, Natalie, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back once again. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about what's happening here with uh, these federal executions, because since July, I believe we have eight federal executions and five more are going to be on the way between now and Election Day. But it sounds like some of these recent executions have actually been contributing to a spread of COVID-19. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
Right. So, you know, when the Trump administration announced last year that they wanted to resume federal executions, um, a lot of anti-death penalty advocates and, you know, lawyers, criminal justice experts were like, hey, you know, here's why this is a bad idea. And then 2020 happened. So it really upped the ante. And as I think a lot of us know right now, I mean, prisons and jails have just ended up being hotspots. And the way you have to carry out executions, I mean, you've got to get witnesses, you've got to get lawyers, you have to get media people, the, the victim's family members are often invited. So you've just got to get a bunch of people into a small room that's already a COVID hotspot. So pretty much everybody was like, yeah, we all see how this is going to end. You should rethink this. And as we now know, the Trump administration did not rethink this. And so what the warning was, was COVID is going to spread because of these executions. And we have enough evidence that that's pretty much what happened. And it's really just such a shame because, once again, this is something completely preventable. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like, according to the ACLU, as you report, that there were even some major issues after positive tests were administered and confirmed by some of the people who attended these uh, executions, correct? Right. It turns out that even after people who attended the execution, whether it be prison staffers, witnesses, anything like that, reported that they had tested positive for the virus, it doesn't appear that DOJ or the Bureau of Prisons really did any kind of contact tracing trying to find out who else may have been infected. And what that does is then it just keeps spreading. You know, if you don't keep track of who was sick and where they were, the virus just becomes uncontrollable. There's just really nothing that you can do about it. So what are current anti-death penalty activists saying and trying to, and how are they trying to stop some of these executions from going forward? Because I think, like I mentioned at the top of the interview, we still have five more of these that are set to take place between now and potentially when Joe Biden is inaugurated as president. Right. So um, between election day and inauguration day, there were, I believe, six scheduled um, And so far, three have been carried out, one in November and two back to back just last week. And so one of one of the frustrating points for activists is by the time you get to the execution date, you've often exhausted all of your appeals. And a lot of what advocates are doing right now is calling on Donald Trump to do the right thing. And I think that can that can feel really discouraging because, well, has he ever done the right thing? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And but, you know, for a lot of these advocates, honestly, it's it's simply worth it. Right. To, to go out and fight for what you believe in. But le- legally, the DOJ can do this. I mean, it's just yet another problem that's kind of baked into the system. And I think this year we're all figuring out like, oh, well, just because we can do it doesn't mean that we should. Yeah, the old, yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So after January 20th, when the Biden-Harris administration takes over, uh, what changes could they make uh, in terms of these federal executions? Because I think, as you reported, it could be a little bit more difficult than just flipping a switch and saying, well, we're no longer going to execute these inmates. Right. Um, I believe that um, a President Joe Biden would have the power to immediately issue a moratorium on the federal death penalty. And since there are none scheduled obviously, for after his inauguration, 
simply not scheduling any would be a fantastic start, right, for for advocates for sure, and definitely the the folks on federal death row. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the power that a president does have. And of course, most of what, um, you know, Biden can do is just on the federal death penalty. Now, the states with the death penalty, that's a whole different ballgame. And I think, you know, you're already seeing way less executions than you used to see in the 80s and 90s. And I'm convinced that it'll fall out of favor. But right now, what the Biden administration's plan is, is to try to incentivize states to just, you know, simply stop. (laughs) Um, We've seen, you know, a lot of states in the last several years, it's their legislatures that are just, you know, abolishing the death penalty. And, you know, it's really, it's really a fringe group that finds this like horrifying. I mean, you know, the death penalty is simply just not popular, not saying that everybody in the country is this huge anti-death penalty activist, but there's hardly any people who are sitting around thinking, oh, man, sure go for some executions today if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely to me yeah the you find a lot more of a groundswell support with people that are opposed to the death penalty than those are who are uh, who are pushing it we're speaking with natalie baptiste she is a reporter in washington dc for mother jones website motherjones.com where you can find her work i want to move on to another piece that you recently wrote talking about how twitter is trying to stop some of the disinformation from donald trump and then well pretty much giving up on some of their efforts so let's at least start here what steps did twitter end up taking a especially around election time, to combat some of these false tweets from President Donald Trump? So around election time, you know, in the weeks leading up to the election, they start flagging tweets that were about election security. You know, Trump went on this whole thing about how mail-in ballots were going to be fraud, basically telling us his whole plan to try to steal the election. Um, And so Twitter started flagging those tweets as saying, you know, this tweet is about, you know, election security. Click here to find out what elections really are all about. And then as we got really close to the election, and then in the immediate aftermath of the election, when Trump would just straight up lie and say, actually, I won, then they started flagging the tweets with, you know, this this election claim has been disputed. And, you know, disputed seems to not really be strong enough of a word. But on Saturday... For a brief time, they took, um, I believe, those three of Trump's tweets and made it so that you could not retweet them and you couldn't like them. And if you went to retweet or like them, instead, you'd be alerted to a message that said, hey, we're trying to stop this from spreading because it's not true. That was the essential message. But it only lasted for a few hours, almost as if they like completely backed down and then went back to that little flag that said, well, this is disputed. And, you know, My disclaimer is that I feel for them. I understand that it's the president of the United States. It's a very large website. We have a lot of rights in this country that, you know, just once again, just because you're allowed to spread election lies doesn't mean that you necessarily should. And they're walking a fine line. But it really was just disappointing to see them take that extra step finally and then just to quickly back down on it, kind of rendering the whole thing like useless. Honestly, just because a tweet has a flag on it, it hasn't stopped it from going viral. And the last point that I wanted to make, something that has been, you know, making me completely lose my mind, is that these are only election tweets. You can say all kind of coronavirus lies on Twitter and they won't get a flag. And so the whole, the whole exercise kind of just feels pointless after a while. 
Yeah, that's such a good point to bring up that he can lie all he wants about COVID or Hunter Biden or other politicians. And for the most part, well, I shouldn't even say for the most part, Twitter completely is let him spread those lies, correct? Without any of those, well, rather weak disclaimers. Yeah, they don't even get a flag. You know, it's like and, and so it kind of creates the illusion that like the election is the only thing he's lying about, which we know is definitely <laughs> not true. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like your point, too, that you brought up with those little check marks or warnings saying that, well, what he tweeted is disputed. Yeah, it's not a real strong enough word. And, well, to be honest, people probably just ignore those. I probably would, too, if I were I a mean, Trump supporter. Yeah, who cares if it's a, a little flag on it? A thousand percent. I mean, disputed is, is what you use for, you know, is pizza better with pepperoni or without <laughs> pepperoni? It's not mm-hmm. necessarily did Donald Trump win the election. That's not disputed. He simply didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So what could happen to Trump after he ends up leaving office? Because as I've read through, it sounds like he could lose some of these protections that he gets right now when he spreads false information, where technically he can't be banned from Twitter, even though he's spreading false information. But that could change after Inauguration Day, correct? That's that's also what I've been hearing. Um, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. But yeah. once he's not president of the United States, Twitter really will run out of excuses. Um, other people have been permanently banned from Twitter for much lesser offenses. So, you know, it'll just be interesting to see if they take the route of, oh, well, he's still a public figure, or if, you know, they just ban him from the site, and I guess he has to go join Parlor, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> And even that website certainly has its own security concerns, as I've talked about in the past. Um, Has Twitter given any indication as to, going back to what you talked about a few moments ago, how they kind of back down from taking down or at least putting further markings on some of Trump's false tweets? Did they give any reasons why they back down sort of from that original stance they had over the weekend? Um, You know, not that I saw. Yeah, not that I saw either. Yeah, because I I was following that. It seemed to be, you know, maybe they were just thinking of it more like a little experiment, a little rollout. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hey, that's Natalie Baptiste. She is a reporter in Washington, D.C. for Mother Jones. Again, follow her work over at MotherJones.com. Hey, Natalie, really appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. That was really fun. And that's just about going to wrap things up for me today. Hope you have a good weekend. We got Matt McNeil coming up next on AM 950.